0: Good morning, I do want to confirm the rumors, I am Ronnie Garcia, so it's uh, it's good to be with you, and thanks for all those shout outs, Houston, Air Force Company, I don't even know what that's about, but thank you for that. Uh, I want to send a shout out to Aaron and Paul, hope that MCL's going strong. Paul, we have Becca and Rebecca, Sabrina, uh, Nathan, Tobin, Uh, these, I want you to know that I have been praying for you guys since I met you, so such a joy to be with you. So, yep, I'm in Puerto Rico and planting churches. Uh, we, we planted Iglesia La Travesia, that's the anchor church. We planted a second church, and by God's grace, we'll be planting a third church here in this coming year. And I'm excited to do it because uh, we believe that participating in God's mission to redeem all of creation is the most exciting thing we could possibly give ourselves to. And I believe that this actually must be core to our identity of really of every Christian. So let's, uh, let's look at God's Word to see why this is true. It, I'm, I'm going to be working in Matthew chapter 5, and if you have a Bible while you're turning there, let me just set it up a little bit for us. In Matthew chapter 5 to 7, you have what's called um, the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott calls this like the manifesto of Jesus, and here's why. When Jesus began his public ministry, he would go around uh, saying uh, this refrain, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was constantly preaching about the kingdom. And so the question that we have is, like, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, the word kingdom is just like, it's like an old-fashioned word to describe an administration. It, it's an administration governed by a ruler or a monarch instead, of course, a, a bureaucracy. And, and this monarch is, in, is fully in charge of how business is conducted Within the borders. The monarch decides how the subjects are, are permitted to relate to the resources of the kingdom. And to the king himself. And so this guy's governing all the affairs within his control. So back then, there's, there's no borders. right? There's no, there's no walls. There's no uh, you know, fences that demarcated where one kingdom ended and, a, and another one began. So the primary way to know whose kingdom you're in was through the king's ability to enforce laws and collect taxes. So, so if, if the king was in control of your life, then you're in his kingdom. It was, it was really that simple. If you owed allegiance and taxes, you're in the kingdom. If you could trust the king to protect you from enemies, then you're in the kingdom. And so Jesus comes to Israel proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And through his teachings, you can begin to understand what life is like under his rule, right, inside this kingdom. And so Matthew 5 through 7, that, those three chapters are the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he describes what life is like under his rule. He, he tells the subjects of the kingdom, that's you and I, what, what we're supposed to be like. He gives us an identity, how we ought to live. And so with that, we're going to turn our attention to one very specific portion of the Sermon on the Mount. So in reverence to God's Word, would you stand with me? I'm going to read this to you. This is Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 14, 15, and 16. So listen carefully. This is the Word of God. He says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand... And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who is in heaven. This is the very word of God. You may be seated. So whenever, you know, some guest preacher like me comes up and teaches through the Sermon on the Mount, they, they usually begin with all sorts of background information. And, and the reason why we do this is because there's this really important context and features that alert the, the reader or the listener, in this case, how we're supposed to interpret those words. You are the light of the world. And so I want to show you some of these features because they have everything to do with how we're to receive that text. And let me begin with the, the significance that the Sermon on the Mount was given on a mountain. Now, in chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew, he says... Jesus went up on the mountainside in order to teach. Now, when you and I hear that small detail, we don't really think much of it. We just think he's sort of describing the scenery. But it's important to pay attention to it because the original audience was like primarily Jewish, right? And every Jew knew that significant encounters with uh, uh, with God happened on mountains. In fact, it was Moses who'd go up on a mountain in order to receive the law, the Torah, It was where, that's where God revealed to Moses how to live as his people. And so Moses went up on that mountain. And Matthew's writing this gospel because he's saying Jesus is this new Moses. Jesus is the Moses par excellence. And this is, this is really kind of subversive because Moses was Israel's like premier, greatest prophet. So Jesus teaches on the mountain because he is a greater Moses telling people how to be He's uh, telling people how to, how to relate to him. Now, there's a second connotation with a mountain. Who is it, you guys, that, that um, hides in mountains? It's insurrectionists and revolutionaries. That's the way you um, elude the control of a despot or a king, a dictator, right? It's to hide in mountains. You remember, like in the Old Testament, you have David. He was the king, but Saul was on the throne. Where did he hide out? Those mountains, right? Or later, the stories of Elijah, right? When he's, when he's fleeing for his life, where is he hanging out? It's mountains. And even in Jesus' more immediate context, you have um, you, these uh, within that century before Jesus, you had these sort of pseudo messiahs who, who tried to overthrow the Roman rule in Palestine. And of course, all those insurrections were crushed, but everyone knew that revolutionaries and insurrectionists hid in mountains until it came time to execute their overthrow. Now, why am I saying all this? Matthew is using this striking imagery to help us understand what Jesus is accomplishing through his teaching. Jesus is not only the Moses par excellence, but he's the the subversive, the revolutionary par excellence. He's—Jesus is not coming just as a sort of wise sage who, who wouldn't make anyone mad. No, no. He is coming as a king whose intention is to declare his absolute authority over every stinking inch of the universe, right? He's establishing this whole new world order. He's establishing a new kingdom. And he starts this revolution, and he conquers people, not not by taking them as slaves, but by by adopting them as sons and daughters— so now can you see how this detail of him giving all of this on the mountain is, is um, so important for interpreting this teaching. Now let me, uh, let me just show why, this is, why I really want you to understand this detail. When Jesus says to you, you are the light of the world, he's not just saying, hey, be good little boys and girls. No. Jesus is describing what life is like in a kingdom where he's the king. This means that he expects... That your faithful participation in the kingdom will have redemptive subversion, right? So, so we, we take these sort of structures of influence and we go into them and we replace them with redeemed ones, right? That's what we're working towards. So if, you, if you're a, an education major, right, and you're studying to be a teacher, how, the question you have is, how do you subvert wrong notions of pedagogy, Right? Or or, or if you're a finance guy, and you want to be a banker, you're going into the finance sector, how do you redeem finance? Right? Jesus is saying, it's not just about sharing your faith at work. It's not less than that. But it includes this uh, this actual understanding that your work in itself matters to God. God loves accountants, and he loves accounting. He's going to redeem all of it. It's souls and the system. It's all of this. But the point is, is is being a subject of the king is not just about being a good boy and girl. Jesus expects that you would hear these words, light of the world, and you would participate in subversion, the subversion of the old system and creating a new one. Because listen, y'all, listen. There is this temptation for every Christian in every church to become a self-licking ice cream cone. You know what a stinking, self-licking ice cream cone is? It's an ice cream cone that benefits no one but itself, right? And, and Lord, have mercy on us if, if we think that walking with Christ is only benefiting us. The whole point of going to college, of getting an education, is, is to equip you to go into the world, right? Redeem it. That's the point of all of this. Your hard work night after night actually matters to the Missio day. It's significant for you and I to understand that when Jesus tells us to be light of the world, he does so from a mountain. The new Moses and the new revolutionary who's creating a new world order. He's not, he's not just creating a nice, a nice little cute church, but rather a church filled with people who go to every sector of society and serves this rightful king, you see. All right, let, let me move to the second feature of this text because it's super important. Matthew says in verse 1— Uh, And to you that Jesus went up on the mountainside and it says that he taught his disciples. Now, what does he precisely teach his disciples? Verse 14, our text, you are the light of the world. Now, this phrase is supposed to sound a little bit crazy, right? See, Jesus is telling his disciples that they're going to bring light, right? The symbol of hope and joy to the whole world. Light light was sort of a metaphor for, a symbol for exposing falsehood and for representing truth. But who are we talking about? The disciples of Jesus were a mess. I mean, could you imagine like Jesus looking Peter square in the eyes and saying, Peter, my man, light of the world. Like, there's a kind of absurdity to the whole thing. Why? Because these guys were cowards? Because they were traitors? Because they were adulterers? They're failures. They're a mess. There's a contradiction between the metaphor of light and the person receiving that metaphor, right? Y'all see that? But that's the point. That's the point. I don't want you to move too fast past this. What Christ accomplished on the cross has something to do with the people who he has invited to be a part of his kingdom. See, listen, God knows your mess, right? He knows your struggle. He knows your addictions. He knows your selfishness. He knows your hypocrisy he knows about your porn struggles and your bulimia listen he knows he wants to help he's he's a redeemer that's what he does god does not regret applying the blood of his son upon you christ does not regret saving you you don't bother him he's nuts about you Somewhere along the way between preaching the gospel and applying it, you began to believe that God relates to you on the basis of your moral performance as if God loved you more because you've been really disciplined. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. It was always Jesus' blood and nothing more than the blood of his son. To borrow from the great reformer Martin Luther, he says, why, why would we be so arrogant to believe that, that our performance would be more compelling and more important than Christ's blood poured out on the cross. Listen, like history, guys, you know this. This is the scandal of history. I mean, how do we, how do we get from a weak Judaism that existed in the Greco-Roman world, 10 BC, to the greatest religious movement the world has ever seen in 100 years? How, do you, how does that happen? It's by wounded, broken people who believed that God loved them, they were so certain of it that they were purchased by the blood of his son, even while they were still enemies. It made women like that woman in John chapter four, you know her, the one with the five husbands. She would leave an encounter with Jesus saying, hey, everyone, you have got to meet this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done, all the mess, and I don't even care because I know him. I love him, you've got to meet him. And the text says that all kinds of people began to believe because of that adulterous woman. Listen, that adulterous woman was the light of the world. Listen, many of you have grown up in the church and you're hiding your lamp under a basket. You're not, you're not participating in God's mission because you are paralyzed with guilt, and you think that you are disqualified. You're not. Get in the game. Grace matters. Messy disciples being called light of the world has to matter to you. Don't move past this point. It's significant that you get all that, that you're seeing this in the sermon. Christ offers this teaching on a mountain, but he offers this teaching... To his disciples who were plagued with sin, just like anyone else, just like you. Let's move to my final observation, verse 14 itself. The last thing to notice is that Jesus here is going to mix his metaphors. He says, You're the light of the world. And then he says, A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And let me explain why this is so important. In ancient times, cities were very rarely built on hills uh, because it's extremely expensive to do so. It's better to build a city in the valley next to a river, you know. But if you were to build a city on a hill or on a plateau, the lights emanating from that city could be seen for miles and miles and miles. People outside of the city would see the light, long for its refuge... And it's protection. And so this picture of a bright city is a metaphor that communicates to the people of God that they are supposed to be an alternate city. Right? There's, there's, there, there are the people of God are supposed to be people who, who live in fundamentally different ways with, with different values and different aspirations. And that is a refuge for the outsider. And here's why this matters to you. And let me... Let me Describe this by, um, do this by describing, t- describing two different um, demographics that I see. On one hand, you have the person who, um, who doesn't believe in God or believe that he could be known. More likely that there is no God, he would say. And this person does not accept that humans have any transcendent purpose in this life. We're just, we're just the product of random evolution, right? They say there's no way of deciding what's right and wrong. You just live your life and then one day die and you get put in the earth that's it and that kind of person will either live a life filled with amusement or distraction so that he does not have to think about his own ultimate fate or if that person is contemplative uh he'll have to find a kind of finite cause to live for right everyone needs a cause doing social justice one facebook post at a time But that person will live in a haze of depression disappointment and insecurity now on the other hand there's the person who's kind of religious right but this person believes in god but still thinks of god in terms of living good enough to make god happy and a religious person works hard right to live a good life and when he fails when he blows it, he has to kind of rationalize it and, and, and describe it in a different way. It justifies it because it is unacceptable for him to fail. Because why? Because he essentially controls his own salvation by his good works. Now, we're way more sophisticated. We'd never say it like that, but that's what's happening. And so when, when, when good things happen, that person thinks that they've, they've kind of earned it, right? Got God's favor through their moral performance. Congrats. But then when bad things happen... That person gets extremely angry with God because they feel like God's not fair. God's not fair. Right? God's not maintaining his part of the deal. Religious people ask questions like this. Why would God allow this to happen to me? They see their lives as a negotiation with God for blessings, right? God God is unwittingly reduced to an equation or like a, a bending machine, so a religious person is constantly swinging emotionally from one hand singing Hillsong songs and ecstatic experiences and, and, and Christian jargon, right? To the other side of, of like uh, of running away from God due to resentment and never coming to church. Yes, right? Religious people not coming to church. It's a thing. Now Jesus, through his teaching. He's calling the church to be a city on a hill. That is, to be this refuge, this alternative to those two extremes, right? When the church is functioning as a light of hope, joy, and truth, people have to reconsider Christianity. All sides have to take this seriously. They have to consider a kind of divine grace that fuses our ordinary world with transcendent meaning. A meaning that affirms that, 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 that life is so meaningful, so significant, that it must be the idea of a divine creator. One that will last even beyond death. They have to consider a kind of divine grace that's not rooted in the works and moral performance of people, but rather the works and moral performance of God himself, of Jesus. The light coming from the city on a hill Offers to the skeptic hope and to the religious rest. That others would see the light, see your good works, see your hope and rest, and be provoked by it and thus give glory to their Father who is in heaven. See, a city on a hill offers light that's so beautiful. That even if you don't believe it is true, even if you don't believe it, you would at least wish it were true. You would want it to be true if you knew what we are talking about. The divine light emanating from the alternate city makes skeptics and religious people alike seriously consider if Jesus Christ is who he claims. And that is where the Missio Dei, the mission of God starts, you see. Let me just finish with this one final thought. Thank you guys so much for your attention this morning. You chapel speakers, they don't have a chance with you guys. Y'all are like dead tired. Uh, so what I've tried to do this morning is just kind of draw our attention to the subversive mountain, the, the messy disciple, and the faith-provoking light. See, listen, you and I as the church, we're the light of the world. Listen, this isn't an extra task that's given to you for your Christian life. This is an actual identity. Christ doesn't say, be a light. He says, you are a light. This is an identity that's coursing through our veins. You might be a selfish one, or you might be a good one, but you are a light. Now this verse, this passage that we looked at this morning became really meaningful when I was evaluating my call to move to Puerto Rico. I mean, Why in the world would I leave my homeland and move my young family to a country filled with people I don't even know? Why would I do that? See, answering that question was incredibly important. And here's what convinced me. When I look at this text, this verse, I wasn't so much compelled to move my family so that I could be a light, although that was incredibly important. But I came to grips with the solemn fact that I was invited to be the light of the world only because Christ permitted that his light be extinguished as he hung on a cross, as the sky went dark, swallowing up the land. And he did it for me, and he did it for you, for his own glory. Listen, his body was broken. His blood was poured out. His light was extinguished. So that you and I could be the light of the world.